0: This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 21, select passages from verse 1 through 19. Verse 1, afterward Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. This is God's word.
1: We're closing out the book of John today. And uh, we talked about the gospel according to John. We said that John answers the question, who is Jesus Christ? It's the central question throughout all of history the central question that we should be asking ourselves throughout our lives. And as we close out, we're really closing out with a very interesting passage here. John includes all these details, all these details uh, that you normally wouldn't see in ancient fictional accounts. For example, he talks about the 153 fish. Scholars have been trying, commentators and scholars have been trying throughout history to make sense out of the significance of that number, 153, and they can't. You have details like Peter wrapping, out his, wrapping his outer garment around himself before jumping out into the boat, out of the boat. You have details like the fact that they were 100 yards from shore. These are all extraneous details. Why were they included? Uh, and, and really, the only possible, the only reasonable explanation is because it happened. John, as he's closing out this gospel, he said, he's really saying to us, "This isn't fiction." This actually happened. This is news. This is history. This is my eyewitness account. There's no fictional novel throughout the ancient times. If you've ever read like the Epic of Gilgamesh, Homer's Iliad, or the Odyssey, if you ever read any of these ancient uh, fictional accounts, um, they don't provide any detail The details, very, very economical with their words. The details are only there because they are significant to the story themselves. But John here, he writes down everything, what he remembered. Why? Because he remembers the whole of his experience. You ever have an experience in your life where it's, even if it's been years ago, the details down to what people were wearing, what people said, how it felt, the smells were so vivid in your life. It's because really the whole of the experience that you had that day was so vivid, so significant. You remember most of the details. That's what happened. That's what John's doing here. This passage, it takes place just after the resurrection. Now, we went through this last week. What happened after the resurrection? The disciples, their tails were between their legs, and Jesus appears to them. And this passage takes place just after that. Jesus appears before several disciples, and now he appears in front of Peter. Now, remember, Peter and Judas, they both betrayed Jesus. At the moment of his greatest need, at the moment of his greatest time of loneliness, in his aloneness, both Peter and Judas experienced remorse. Both of them wept. Judas actually tried to make good out of what he did, but he takes his own life. And so this passage becomes the pivotal moment in Peter's life. It's going to make his life. It's going to remake his life. It's going to shape his life to a great degree. Now, there are three things we're going to learn from this text. First, what is real community? It answers the question to what is real community? What does it mean to be restored? What does it mean to mature? Real community, real restoration, real maturity. First, we're going to look at The answer to what is real community versus uh, the first 14 verses here, I'm going to give you a brief background here. You have Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, and two other people, two other disciples. They go with Peter on a boat late at night to catch fish, Now they were skilled fishermen. And they go out there late at night to fish, and they catch nothing. And it's early in the morning, Jesus appears on the shore and he calls out to them and he says, throw out your net on the right side of the boat. And they do. And what happens as a result? 153 fish. And it was John who Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John recognizes that it's the Lord. He says to Peter, it is the Lord. And so what does Peter do? He immediately heads out towards Jesus while the other disciples, they're left to bring the boat in, to bring the fish in. And Jesus already has this fire ready. And he's got fish on the fire, and he asks for some of the fish that were caught, and they brought it, brought it over. And he breaks bread and eats. He dines with them. They eat together. Now, why were the disciples together? It's the first thing we see here. Why were they together? Their master was shamed. Their master was tortured. Their master was executed. It was actually dangerous for them to be together. Why were they together? And what really held them together? They had a newfound confidence. They had a living center. They had a risen Savior. They already knew that Jesus had risen from the dead and it gave them a confidence to come together. But second, look at who Jesus brings before them. Look at who Jesus gathers. Look who he invites. First, you have Nathaniel in John chapter 1. John's taking you all the way back to the beginning of his gospel. And you have Nathaniel, who was really, he came to Jesus, he was an easy believer. Jesus said one phrase to him, Nathanael believed. But then on the other side, you, he, John fast-forwards to the other end of the Gospels. You have Thomas in chapter 20 who would not believe. Thomas just wouldn't believe. He was, a, he was an incredulous believer. He was a skeptic. Generally, easy believers and skeptics don't usually get along. Then you have John. John's the one who puts this entire narrative together. He's the thinker. He's the assessor. He's the one who puts all the pieces together. And you have Peter. Peter's a reactor. Peter's a feeler. Generally speaking, thinkers and feelers don't get along. Not easily. What do you see here? This is a picture of a thriving church. In the church, there are common experiences among different types of people that are all centered around their personal, unique encounter with Jesus Christ. And as a result, there are tremendous opportunities for greater wisdom, greater learning, greater blessing, greater richness. Remember, at first, none of these disciples were looking for Jesus, right? At first, none of them recognized Jesus at this time. They all saw the same Jesus at one point. They all had a common experience of Jesus at one point in their lives. It actually brought them together. Even the nuances of their experiences were wrapped around the central underlying common experience of coming to Christ. And it was so powerful that that experience shaped them. You have Nathaniel and Peter, polar opposites. You have Peter and John, polar opposites. In John chapter 20, you have Mary. Jesus says, don't touch me. Then you have Thomas, he says, touch me. You have common experiences underlying underbellying really all these rich, personal, unique experiences, encounters that these people had with Jesus Christ. A disciple, what this tells us is that a disciple never knows a side of Jesus Christ, really never learns a side of themselves unless there are other people, unless they're walking with other disciples in their lives. Rich community. An experience of knowing other Christians and their experience of knowing Jesus brings us to know Jesus in greater dimensions. In other words, what kills the multidimensional aspect of true Christian fellowship is when it stops being about knowing Jesus. As a pastor, you know, the third thing we see here is as a pastor, uh, one of my big flaws, very well aware of this, one of my big flaws is I jumped the gun. It's part of my people-pleasing nature. It's part of my, uh, part of my people-pleasing uh, personality and one of my flaws. I see someone that I meet, and I know that I want to meet with that person, but I also know my schedule's terrible. So what do I do? I kind of put like a little bookmark or a placeholder. I go up to it. and I say, we got to get together sometime. Let's get together sometime. It's actually one of my flaws. And um, it's, it's, you know, I know my schedule's bad, um, and, I, and I see somebody I meet, I want to meet with them, and I say, it's my way of saying, I really want to meet with you, but I just can't get a date on the calendar, so it's going to have to be at some point in the future, but I really want to meet with you. Here are the disciples amidst danger, amidst risk. They actually get together. Intentionality. There's this incredible intentionality. It's not like Peter saying, you know, I want to fish, and the other disciples are saying, you know, I was thinking the exact same thing. Let's go and fish together. That's not what happened here. That's actually not what's happening. It wasn't fishing that they wanted to do. It was actually being together because of their core experience of knowing Jesus Christ. Your ability to get into somebody's life, your ability to let someone into your life, that's a supernatural thing. It's one of the greatest marks of a genuine faith. True community. And and the importance of community, the significance of true community. What does that mean? Today, people say, Why do I really need to commit to a church? I'm skeptical of the church. I'm skeptical of leaders and leadership. Why do I need to join a church? I mean, after all, faith is between God and me, right? It's because you'll never grow. You know, God, even God in and of himself, is a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the best way to experience God in all of his dimensions is in the context of a body why we're called a body a community of faith true community it means that we have a newfound confidence a centrality of experience around jesus christ and intentionality even in the midst of suffering that's community second point is uh restoration real restoration what is that this entire narrative was set up for jesus's ensuing encounter with peter it was really all for peter I mean, all the disciples abandoned Jesus, but Peter's betrayal was the most pronounced, the one that we remember the most. Everybody denied Jesus. Everybody rejected Jesus. Everybody hid once Jesus was arrested, but Peter denied Jesus three times. In the Bible, whenever you see something mentioned three times, uh, it always represents completeness, Finality, the perfect model, the perfect example, a superlative. They didn't have, in our language today, we have good, and if something's good, something can be better, and if something's better, you can have something that's best. We have superlatives. good, better, best. But in the Bible, and especially in the ancient times, the Old Testament period, we see holy, holy, holy. Three times. The other disciples, they were broken. But Peter was very broken. Why? Because Peter betrayed him not once, not twice, three times. He was so broken. The other disciples, they were in shame. But Peter's shame, he was very ashamed. The other disciples, they were broken. Peter's brokenness, he was the most broken. So Jesus sets this entire encounter up. Why? For Peter's restoration. Because if Peter, if a person like Peter can be restored, then we can all be restored. Every one of us can be restored. So of all the things that Jesus could have focused on after the resurrection, what does he do? Of all the things that John recounts to close out this amazing gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what does he do? He brings up this encounter that Jesus has with Peter. Remember, John says Jesus did many other things as well. If I were to recount it, there wouldn't be enough books. There wouldn't be enough paper to fill up to recount all the things that Jesus did. But he recounts this incident, this encounter. Look at the grace of God. Look at the love of God. Look at the commitment that Jesus has. Look at the compassion of God in Christ. How does he restore Peter? He does three things. What he really does here is he kind of orchestrates moments and glimpses of Peter in his encounter with Christ throughout his relationship with him. So you have this catch of fish. That's something that happened. It's reminiscent of something that happened when when Peter first uh, encountered Jesus for the very first time. It's, you see the cold and the fire. It's, it's reminiscent of when Peter was there when he, when he rejected Jesus three times. It was in the midst of a cold. It was in the midst of fire. The food is what? Bread and fish. It was reminiscent of the, of the miracle that every gospel recounts, the, mir- the miraculous uh, feeding of the 5,000. So in this context, you see the restoration of Peter. What happens here? In the catch of the fish, You have the fish, the boat, the net, the haul, the 153 fish. It was reminiscent of the first time that Peter meets Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus tells Peter, put your net out into deep water. And when they did, they caught so much fish, the net actually began to break. At that moment, when Peter first encounters Jesus, Peter says, depart from me. He says, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. At that moment, Peter realized the power. The wisdom of Jesus, and it overwhelmed him so much. He was so emotional. There were so many mood swings with Peter. But here in John chapter 21, what happens? This time around, when Jesus comes, he's more rational. Before he was this, this kind of impulsive reactor, this feeler, but this time around, remember, John was the assessor, John was the thinker. But here, Peter, he's putting the pieces together. He's processing, he's listening. He's growing up. How do you know that you're growing up? The first, time, the first time Peter met Jesus, he wanted to get away. He wanted to go distant because Jesus made him feel small. He says, depart from me now. After his greatest failure, after his greatest failure, he wants to get as close as possible. You see him taking out his outer garment. He wraps it around, and he jumps into the water and immediately says he was pressing towards Jesus. He wants to be close. He wants to be near others who know Jesus even though he hit rock bottom, look, whenever you encounter the real God of the Bible, it's threatening. There is no way you can encounter the real God of the Bible and it not not be threatening to your life, not be threatening to your lifestyle. So that's actually very natural because it's going to make you feel you're a sinner. It's going to make you feel like a fraud, like a fake. That's always the case. That's natural. Why was Peter able to run to Christ now? after all these years, after his greatest failure, why? It's because he understood the gospel. That the defining factor in his relationship with God is not what he did. The defining factor in our relationship with God is not what we did, but what Christ did for us. Peter got it. Peter finally got it. He finally got what makes or breaks his relationship with God. Oftentimes, you know, if you build uh, on the fact that you are capable or that you're a good person or that you're a wealthy person or that you have a good reputation, you're very well liked, then any reminder of your failure, any reminder of your sin, it's going to send you into a tailspin. That's natural. It's going to send you into a tailspin. You're going to say, you know how you're going to say, you know how you're going to act? You're going to say, depart from me. Get away from me. That's what you're going to say. Peter doesn't run away. Not this time. He runs to Jesus. Peter doesn't fall down. He actually rises here. He doesn't shrink back. He actually moves forward. How is he able to do that? For a Christian, the knowledge of our sin makes the sight of Jesus even more beautiful. It doesn't make God look terrible. It actually makes God look more beautiful. It leads us towards maturity. You know how you know that you're a religious person or just a religious person? When you fail and you're found out the first thing you do is you say, depart from me. Because what you're saying is, it was based on my work. It was based on my effort. And I failed. So get away from me. And so you beat yourself up over and over. You beat yourself up. That's how you know. You find ways to hide. You find ways to cover yourself up. I'll tell you all the natural things we tend to do. right? We find ways to hide. We cover ourselves up. We try to bolster ourselves with other things. We all of a sudden become very religious. We try to make good by doing all the right things. We try to pick out all the flaws in other people because if we can hide behind that and they become the focus. That's what we like to do. We do that all the time. Jesus here says, you got to understand the gospel here. Jesus says, you are covered. I have covered you. Friends, there have been times this year, I mean, this is, it's time for the new year. We think about the new year in our lives. In my reflections, there have been times this year when my sin has been put in front of me and uh, regardless of the intent regardless of you know, what, uh, what intent there was, when you, get, when you are confronted with your sin, you feel incredibly like you're at the table and you're really poor and you're sitting with a lot of wealthy people. Kind of like when you go to the prom but you're not dressed right. You know, that's how you feel. You, you want to shrink back. It's easy to hide. That's natural to hide. But this is when you need to look I'll tell you how you get healed from this. You need to look to the righteousness of Christ because it's you hiding yourself in Christ that makes Jesus look incredibly beautiful and you are found beautiful in him. Union with him. That's what it is. That's maturity. So this catch of fish was really a reminder of Peter in his first encounter with Jesus and you see the change of Peter. Peter. You see him maturing. You see him growing. He's now becoming an accessory. He's putting the pieces together. He's starting to get the gospel. The second thing we see here is the fire and the cold. It's a reminder of the night of, of Peter's betrayal of Jesus. In John chapter 18, they asked Peter, aren't you his disciple? And he said, I am not. He rejects Jesus. He betrays Jesus. He said this in the cold as he was standing by the fire. They asked him, aren't you his disciple? He said, no, I'm not. I'm not. In Matthew's account, the third time they asked him, he actually utters a curse word about Jesus. He says, "I don't know this man." Three times. What a screw up. Completely screws up. He broke his promise to his master. Who's ever going to trust me again? Again. Who's ever going to follow him again? I thought I could perform better than anyone, and instead, I performed the worst out of everyone. That's that's Peter here, but look, if you're willing to repent, one of the fruits, you know what it is? You're broken. There's a genuine humility here and a boldness. In Acts chapter 2, just a few chapters later, in Acts chapter 2, what's Peter doing? He's out there and he's preaching to the crowd. He's preaching out in the open. He's no longer worrying about saving himself because he's found himself. He's humble. He's not obnoxious. It's not like the people are rejecting him and throwing him into the fire. That's not what you see him doing. They're being drawn to him and what he's saying. There's a humility there, a newfound humility. He's not obnoxious. He's not arrogant. There's a newfound courage. He's out there in the open. He's not afraid. Why? Because he saw his sin, and he saw the risen Jesus, and he was forgiven. And that forgiveness, he was hiding behind the righteousness of Christ. So so Jesus is drawing Peter into the cold, into the fire, to set him up for the forgiveness. And thirdly, we see the food, the fish, the loaves. It's a reminder of that great miracle when Jesus fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6. This is probably the most recounted miracle by all the disciples. It reminds us of the power of Jesus, the power of God. Here's Peter now, in a meal with Jesus, experiencing with clarity a picture of his brokenness, a picture of his betrayal, and a picture of Christ's power, and a picture of Christ's presence. And in verse 15, Jesus asks him, this is the crux. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these scholars for centuries they've been debating what are these and and the answer really i'm going to cut to the chase here the answer is we don't really know a lot of people speculate and try to make sermons out of it do you really love me more than these we don't really know we maybe he was referring to the fish maybe he was referring to fishing as a profession maybe he was referring to the disciples do you love me more than your friends we don't really know but in mark chapter 14 This is before Jesus was arrested. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus predicts that he will be struck down, that the disciples will betray him, that they will abandon him, that they're going to be scattered. And Peter says this. He says something again is his casual, impulsive self. He says, even if they all fall away, I will not. In other words, what he's saying, why? Because I love you more than these. Peter is bold, but he's not very humble, and he fails and he's broken. What is sin? Sin is betrayal. Sin is denial. Sin is walking away from Jesus. Sin is rejecting Jesus. And Peter here is the most broken. What does Jesus say? Verse 15, it says, Peter, I'm just going to summarize it, okay? Really what he's saying here is, Peter, you failed me. Peter says, I know, but I love you. Verse 16, Peter, you failed me. You failed. Peter says, I know. I love you, though. Verse 17, now the third time, it just broke Peter because he knows why Jesus is doing this. It's the third time. It's ripping him apart. He's got no defense. Peter, you failed. Peter, he says, I know. But you know I love you. Notice, there's no blame shifting. He doesn't sit there and say, you know, but everybody here failed, too everybody failed, not just me, right, Jesus? You don't see him saying that. He doesn't say, how many more times are you going to ask me? No complaints. No hiding. He agrees in the heart. He says, you know me. You know. He says, I'm broken by that. What I did broke me. I agree. Now, you need to see something here. You notice Jesus doesn't actually bring up the actual betrayal. He doesn't say, Peter. Remember when we were by the fire, kind of like this, uh, and and that. I remember I was there, and that person asked you if you knew me, and you said no. I demand an apology. That's not what he does. Why? He's going deeper. Why did you fail, Peter? Let's say you're at work and you commit a series of violations where you worked. You break certain rules, and those rules pretty much cost you your job. Maybe you've gone to jail for it. Maybe you're going to go to jail for it. You're going to fry. Now you're in despair. And if you're sitting there and saying, what's going to happen now? Gosh, I was a Christian. I'm a Christian. Why did I do that? And you're kicking yourself because of what you did. That's not repentance. You're just beating yourself up. That's called self-pity. Self-pity oftentimes looks like repentance. You're really feeling bad for yourself. You're really feeling bad because of the consequences in your life. That's not repentance. Repentance. Jesus, he doesn't sit there and say, Peter, remember this? He's not hammering Peter. That's not what he's trying to do here. He's going deeper. When he asks Peter, do you love me? It's the central question for why we do anything we do, if you think about it. If you're really honest with yourself, the reason why you abandon anybody for something else is because you love that something else more. He says, do you love me? He's asking, why did you betray me? It's because you love something else more. That's what sin is. Sin is betrayal. Sin is denial. Sin is rejection. What you're saying is, in this moment, I love something else more. I need this more. There was this functional God that's present in my life It's present in the fraud. It's present in my lies. It's present in my betrayal. Maybe I love the relationship more. Maybe I love my title more. Maybe I love that person's title more. Maybe I love power more. Maybe I love money more, a higher salary more. For Peter, Jesus went deeper. Why did you betray me? And when the person you love the most is the person you hurt the most, it's going to tear you apart. It's going to humble you. It's going to break you. What did Jesus do? Now you will pay, Peter, in front of all your friends. You're out. I want you to know that. Or does he say, fine, I'll let you back in, but you must pay the price. That's not what Jesus does. Look at the grace of God. Look at the beauty of Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, you failed me in the greatest way. Feed my sheep. Now, that's an amazing thing that he's saying there. Why? What are Jesus' sheep? In John chapter 10, you know, John's amazing because what he's doing is bringing together all the things that he's been saying and he's kind of capturing it all in this final chapter. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He talks about his commitment to a sheep, his love for a sheep. He calls them out my name. We talked about how that is very unusual. Even though a shepherd would love his sheep, it's unusual for a shepherd to know the names or assign a name to all of his sheep. He says, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. He says, I call them by name. The sheep were his treasure. Three times he says, you failed me. Peter says, I know. He says, I'm entrusting my treasure to you. Do you see that? Each time he's entrusting Peter. That's how Pe- what gave Peter the confidence to do what he did only a few chapters later? What gave, Jesus the co- what gave Peter the confidence to just absolutely be assured that he is now in Christ? Later on in Peter's epistles, He reminds us of who we are in Christ. He says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen people. You are a people belonging to God. What gave him that assurance? That's how he knew he was in. Jesus is saying, these are my sheep, and now I want you to follow with me to do and to finish what I had started. This is your mission. He commissions Peter. He gives him a new mission. A new purpose in life. He says, Yeah, when you all your life, you've been trying to increase your potential and your options and your joy and your freedom, and those pursuits have led to a betrayal that has decreased your position, potential, decreased your options, decreased your joy, decreased your freedom. I will make you great. I will make you great. When you see your faults, when you see your sin, and you stop running, and you stop complaining, and you stop blaming other people, and blaming circumstances, and blaming other things, and you stop lying, and you stop covering up, there is the end of your fatigue. You know, when you're doing that, it's incredibly tiring. You're just so tired of running. But if you stop doing that, because you see your faults, you see your sin, and you see yourself hidden in Christ, there is the end of fatigue, there is the end of the paranoia, You're beginning to experience real joy. Rest, Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You get rest, a greater potential. That's restoration. It's empowering. It's incredibly empowering, the forgiveness of Jesus. So you have real community in Jesus. You have deep restoration in Jesus. Lastly, what does it mean to grow in Jesus? In verses 18 to 19, Jesus says, Peter, when you were young, You dressed yourself, you went wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Somebody else will dress you and lead you to places you do not want to go. He's talking about real maturity in Christ. He says real maturity in Christ is built on the character of surrender. It's not just about things that you do. It's built on a character of surrender. True maturity is not so much what you do because you're growing, but what you give up what you're surrendering because you're growing, stretching out your hand. You ever see a child cross the street? The parent, you know, my nephew, I said this before, I shared this before. My nephew, he's at that stage where you just kind of leave him alone and five minutes, he'll be dead. You can't leave him alone. He just runs around everywhere on his own. He doesn't know what can hurt him. He thinks the world is still a very safe, happy, good place. So if you leave him alone, he wouldn't last five minutes on this earth. Jesus says true maturity is surrender. True maturity is True freedom is giving up your freedom. Is dependence on the right master. When you stretch out your hand, two things you're doing. One, you're, when you stretch out your hands, you're, you're vulnerable. There's no boxer in the world that uses stretching out his hands as a, box, as a, as a boxing technique, right? Because uh, you have no defense. You're vulnerable now. On the other hand, when you stretch out your hand, you can now open yourself up. You can now reach out. Jesus is saying that, a, that Christian maturity is marked by your ability to become weak, your ability to become dependent, your ability to trust, and it plays out in your ability to embrace, your ability to forgive, your ability to give. He clearly meant this as a double entendre. Because he was saying, you, you're going to stretch out your hands. Jesus has just come. He's just risen from the dead. He's Clearly a double entendre, he's talking about the cross. What is he saying? He's saying, Peter, when you grow, you're going to build your life. You're going to build the pattern of your life around my death. How do you do that? How do you sacrifice like that? You've got to look to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. How do you surrender like that? You've go, you got to look to Jesus' ultimate surrender. Jesus Christ, the most wise person who ever walked the earth, who had an intimate relationship with God, but his own life was set up. God had set up his life. Much Here's Jesus setting up Peter's life to encounter him. God had set up Jesus' life from thousands of years prior, set it all up, ultimately, so that he would give. He would surrender. How do you surrender? You gotta look to Jesus' ultimate surrender. From the beginning of time, there were markers and pointers and figures, figures of sacrifice, examples of surrender, Jesus Christ ultimately stretches out his hands. Why? First to heal, to give, to forgive, to feed. But instead of being clothed, he was ultimately stripped naked. And he was led. He was led to the cross. The one whom God loved. The one who was loved and cherished by his father. The one who always obeyed. The one who lived a perfect life the all-wise almighty God and yet rather than being clothed he was his clothes were taken away and rather than being led to honor to a place of honor he says my glory he says father it is now time for the son of man to be glorified his glory was his death he was led to the cross where he stretched out his hands and he died on the cross. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, you have departed from me. Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinner. Jesus says, the wrath of God has been pouring out on me because I have absorbed at that moment the sinfulness of all those whom I love. And the wrath of God is pouring out on me. He said, you have departed from me. I am afflicted, I am abandoned, I am shamed. So that why? So that we could run to the Father. So that we can be healed by the Father. So that we can be restored by His Spirit. So that we could be accepted in Christ. So that we can be forgiven by the Father. Jesus Christ was clothed in wrath. Why? So that we can be clothed in his righteousness. Jesus Christ stretched out his hand. He said, now I am vulnerable. Now I have no defense. Why? So that we can have the embrace of God. Jesus stretched out his hand. He says, now I'm experiencing the full wrath of God. Why? So that we can experience the full love of God. If the gospel is not real, If the gospel is not deep in your life, then you're going to use anything that's going to seem like an advantage in your life to make you feel superior because you have to. Because we're so broken, we need something in our lives to lift us up. You're going to look to anything, anything to feel superior. You're going to look to your looks. You're going to look to your wealth, even your own goodness. You're always going to justify yourself. There's this superiority that we need. There's this ego because our DNA told us what we once were, what we lost and we think we can get it on our own, and that's why we can't forgive, that's why we're always angry, and that's why we're so tired, and that's why we're bitter. You're never going to taste the forgiveness of God that way. But when the gospel goes deep, you're going to see that the most superior, the most mature person that ever walked the earth limited himself for you, experienced shame for you on the full wrath of God for you stretched out his hands what he was saying he says into your hands you know that even though even in the midst of all the torture the physical torture the physical rejection God himself had departed from Jesus and the wrath of God is pouring out on him he says into your hands he still trusted into your hands I commit my spirit he still trusted God he still called he said my God my God why have you forsaken me he's still calling him his God do you see that look at the trust of Jesus Look at the commitment and the faithfulness of Jesus. He did that for you. All the way to his death. That's the extent of his vulnerability. That's the extent of your embrace. That's the end of, this is gonna mark the end of snobbishness because he did it for you. One of my favorite hymns portion of one of my favorite hymns rock of ages naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace all for sin could not atone thou must save and thou alone it's so fitting this passage is incredibly fitting for the new year because when you look back in a new year you always look back and you, one of the first things you always think about is all the ways that you failed We break our resolutions. We fail in so many ways. This passage reminds us of the need for community. Will you make this year a year in which you will commit to your community? It's a call to renewal. You can be renewed again. You know, when we respond uh, in song together, we can stand as a body. and We can say we stand as a renewed people, not on the basis of our record, not on the basis of our merit, but on the basis of Christ's merit, transferred to us on the cross and that sets us off on a path to maturity will you commit this year to be a year of remembering Christ again running to Christ even in the midst of sin Peter imagine the image of Peter every time we sin take on the image of Peter who had wrapped the moment he saw Jesus instead of saying depart from me because he knew Christ now gets the gospel, the risen Christ, he runs towards him. Will you make this a year, a year of running towards Christ? Let's pray.